0: As we continue on through the book of Colossians, like I said, just a handful of uh, texts left, Lord willing, in our series, and we'll look forward to hearing from God's Word. So this morning is Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 11, and I invite you to follow along with me as we listen to God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, sexual immorality, with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all, and in all. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for Your grace now that we would have ears of faith, Father, minds of understanding and hearts that are ready to believe what it is that You have spoken in Your Word. Father, we acknowledge this morning and we rejoice in the fact that You are a God who speaks. You have not remained silent. And therefore, Your speech must be reckoned with, God. To hear the voice of God speaking in the Scriptures Because that is what the Bible is. It is Your Word. To hear the voice of God speaking in the Scriptures, Father, is of utmost importance. So would You help us now, Father, for these brief moments, for these brief moments to consider what You have said. Please, God, keep me from error and grant Your people discernment that we might hold fast to the truth even as we await the day that the Lord Jesus returns. And we pray in His name. Amen. In January of this year, the New York Times ran an article entitled, Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. The author, Julia Shears, recounts the time her nine-year-old daughter asked her, Mama, what is sin? For Mrs. Shears, this was a moment of parenting success. She herself was raised in what she calls a fundamentalist home, but she's not raising her children According to the faith, instead, Shears seeks to teach her children right from wrong without any reference to Christianity. In her mind, the Bible, with its insistence on sin, is altogether unhelpful. In fact, according to Mrs. Shears, this is the primary problem with Christianity an obsession with sin that leads to fear and hypocrisy. This idea of a sin free worldview is not confined to the New York Times. In 2005, sociologist Alan Wolfe made largely the same argument in his book, "The Transformation of American Religion." Wolfe says the following of American churches, quote, "Talk of hell, damnation and even sin has been replaced by a non-judgmental language of understanding and empathy." Close quote." For Mr. Wolfe, this change is good, even necessary. In Wolfe's view, Christianity's insistence on sin works against human flourishing. It leads to division and produces intolerance. So again, what is the cause of society's problems? It's Christianity and its obsession, allegedly, with sin. As Christians who live under the authority of God's Word, how should we respond to these allegations? We have to respond. Is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ unhelpfully obsessed with sin? Does Scripture's teaching on sin lead to fear, intolerance, and hypocrisy? Well friends, our passage this morning is a good place to begin with an answer. As you heard when we read, Paul is certainly concerned with the issue of sin. It's actually unmistakable. Twice in these verses, Paul provides a detailed list of behaviors that can only be called sinful. What's more, Paul clearly views these sinful practices as serious. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, Paul says. So there can be no denying that Scripture is in fact definitely concerned with sin. You cannot read the Bible and come to any other conclusion. At least not honestly. Colossians 3 is just one example among many. The Bible is certainly concerned with sin. But that's not the end of this passage, is it? It might be easy to miss this, friends, but what is the overall tone of verses 5-11 through here in Colossians 3? It's that sin, while serious and sobering, is not the defining feature of the Christian life. By God's grace, sinners can change. What a wonderful word that is. By God's grace, sinners can change. By God's grace, sinners do not have to be defined by their sin any longer. Again, let's not miss this, friends. For all of the detailed talk about sin in these verses, what is Paul's primary point? That God's people can put those things away. That God's people can change. And so, as Christians, we would say to the Mrs. Shears and the Mr. Wolfs of the world, yes, Christianity deals with the reality of sin. Yes, the Bible insists that we take sin seriously. But the good news is that sin does not have to be the final word. The good news is there is a Savior, Jesus Christ, and His Gospel saves sinners like us, which on its own is an unimaginably wonderful thought that the Gospel would save us. But that's not the fullness of the good news. That same gospel also changes us so that we no longer look like what we once were, so that our lives grow to begin and begin to look more and more like Christ's. Are we concerned with sin? Yes, but we're concerned with sin because we love gospel change. That's the good news. Friends, this idea of change that Paul is talking about in Colossians 3, this is what theologians call sanctification. That's what this passage is about. It's about sanctification. And just so we're clear, sanctification is simply the fancy word for growing in holiness. You don't have to use or know the word sanctification. Growing in holiness is what it means. And as you can hear, even in that simple definition, sanctification has two parts. There's the negative side, the putting off of old sinful practices, what the Puritans used to call mortification. And then there's the positive side, the putting on of godly practices, what the Puritans called vivification. If we're going to pick one new word, I want it to be that one. Vivification. Just because it sounds really vivid. Our passage today focuses on that first part, the negative part, the putting off of sinful practices. So if it sounds to you this morning like the Apostle Paul is really hammering what you ought not to do, then that's good. That means you're tracking with the text. That is what he's saying. What to put off. And Lord willing, we'll get to the positive side, the putting on next week. But even in this, even in this passage, friends, even in all the talk of putting off, Paul's focus is on change. I don't want us to lose sight of that today. Sanctification acknowledges the truth about sin, but it does so for the purpose of growth. It acknowledges the truth about sin for the purpose of change. So that's what I hope we take away from today. Not that Christians are obsessed with sin, but that through the Gospel of Christ, God gives His people grace that they might grow. Specifically, I'd like us to see five aspects of sanctification this morning. Five features that should mark the Christian's labor to put off sin. Let me give them to you in advance. Sanctification must be ruthless. Sanctification must be specific. Sanctification must be hopeful. Sanctification must be ongoing. And sanctification must be unifying. Ruthless, specific, hopeful, ongoing, unifying. So, with an eye toward change, let's consider each one of those together, beginning with... Sanctification must be ruthless. Verse 5 begins with a striking command from the Apostle Paul. Notice again what he writes. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You may remember from verse 2 that Paul called the Colossians to set their minds on things above, not on earthly things. Through Christ, Christians no longer belong to this world. By faith, the believer's life is now hidden with Christ in God. Here in verse 5, Paul gives the next step in the application of that gospel truth. Because believers are united to Christ, we must now put sin to death in our daily living. And the image here is ruthless, friends. This is one of those instances where it helps to notice what Paul did not say. He did not say, put sin under management, as though sin can be tolerated in small doses. He did not say, put sin in containment, as though sin's effects can be quarantined. And he did not say, put sin under watch, as though sin can be merely monitored. No, Paul says, put to death what is earthly in you. In other words, when it comes to fighting sin, there can be no surrender, and there must be no truce. Friends, if you remember the Lord Jesus' teaching on sin, then you'll find a similar emphasis. Again, we find the Apostle Paul is not really giving a new command. He's just following on from the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is teaching on sin and He says if your eye causes you to sin, what should you do? Tear it out. If your hand causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off. You see, that's the kind of ruthlessness that sanctification Calls for. For the Christian, the only response to sin is spiritual execution. Put to death, Paul says, what is earthly in you. Now, of course, the question at this point is why so ruthless? Why does Paul use such striking language? Well, notice what he says, verse 6. On account of these, that is, on account of these sinful practices, the wrath of God is coming. Here, Paul reminds us that God hates sin. That's what God's wrath is. It is God's righteous, holy anger. It is His personal opposition to our rebellion against Him. I know this is not a popular concept today, even in many churches, but there is no way to wiggle out from underneath verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And by the way, friends, we want God to be wrathful. The world is broken and full of wicked, wicked things. And we want God to burn with righteous anger against those things. His wrath is not bad news. It's part of why He's a good God. And verse 6 says that God hates sin and His wrath is coming against it. And as a Christian, as a Christian, the reality of God's wrath should produce in me a renewed desire for holiness. This is is important, friends. When I read that God's wrath is coming against sin, what should I do? I should look to the cross and recognize that it was my sin that caused this wrath to be poured out on the Lord Jesus. I should recognize that were it not for Christ, I would face this wrath on my own. Friends, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in His life, death, and resurrection, the Bible says this is your future to endure the wrath of God. But the good news is that Jesus came to bear that wrath in His body on the tree that we might be saved. If you don't know Him today, trust Him and be saved. For the Christian, however, this news of God's wrath in verse 6, it should cause us to be sobered. It should sober us with the reality that sin is not something to toy around with. Friends, this is not the only reason that we should kill sin, but it is a reason. It was that sin that led Jesus to the cross. And we should want to kill it. All sin deserves the judgment of God. And all sin will be judged, either on the last day or at the cross of Christ. And therefore, sin is not to be trifled with, Paul is saying. Verse 6 is Paul's way of saying, don't fool around with sin. Instead, put it to death. Just as Paul says here in verse 5. And so, brothers and sisters, we're faced with a question. Are we ruthless in the fight against sin? And we need to be honest at this point. We need to be honest. Am I seeking to kill my sin or am I merely trying to manage it? Am I walking in God's Word and praying for the Spirit's help to put sin to death? Remember, friends, Our weapons in this fight are God's Holy Word and God's Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered why we print Holy Bible on the front of the Bibles? It's to remind us that the Word of God is the Holy Spirit's means, it's the Holy Spirit's instrument of producing holiness in us. God's Holy Word, God's Holy Spirit coming together in the heart of God's people to produce godliness, holiness, Those are your weapons. So I ask you, are you ruthless in the fight? Are you ruthless against sin or are you merely trying to manage it? Ask God, even this morning, to help you hate sin as He hates sin. It's a good thing to pray that you would hate the things that God hates. And He hates sin. Ask Him to give you a greater desire to fight. Put to death what is earthly in you, Paul says. And from that, we see that sanctification must be Ruthless. The second mark comes in verses 5 and 8. Sanctification must be specific. Sanctification must be specific. You'll notice that after the command in verse 5, Paul provides a list of specific sins. Look again at what he writes. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. Now the first sin in the list gives us the theme, so to speak. The theme is sexual immorality. That's the theme of this list. Paul is concerned that Christians be people of moral purity. That we resist sexual sin in all of its forms. This is a good place to remember that there is nothing new under the sun. The first century world was a hypersexualized world just as ours is in the 21st century. The forms may have changed, but the temptation remains the same. There's nothing new under the sun. And therefore, this is a call that we need to listen to, brothers and sisters. As God's people, we must put all sin to death, but there is a particular need that we be a people of moral purity. Few things undermine the Gospel faster than impure actions in this realm in the life of Christians. In our thoughts, desires, and actions, we must show the world that our lives, including how we use our bodies, are submitted to the Lordship of Christ. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So I, just, I ask you, is that true of you, brothers and sisters? Not in a perfect sense, but in an ongoing sense. Are you striving to grow in the holiness of purity? In those moments when no one sees, are you laboring after a pure heart? And I do want to stress that it's the lordship of Christ that prompts Paul to write this list. This is key, friends. Paul is not throwing out a random list of sins in verse 5. No, he's thinking primarily about the lordship of Christ. Notice the last sin in the list. Covetousness. That might seem out of place to you since we tend to think about coveting in connection with material goods. But it's more than materialism, isn't it? Covetousness is actually an attempt to make myself God. That's what covetousness is. Think about it. To covet something is to say that I am the authority over my own life, that I have decided I do not have enough, and therefore I am taking what I believe belongs to me. It's an attempt to be God. And isn't that where every sexual sin begins, friends, with an ungodly desire for more than what God has said is good and right? You see, this list is not random at all. These kinds of sins, perhaps more than any other, are a denial of the Lordship of Christ. That's why Paul calls covetousness idolatry. Because by desiring something more than what God says is good, we're using our lives to worship the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. But Paul's not finished. There's another list later in the passage. Notice again verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Here, Paul focuses on what we might call community-destroying sins. These are sins that begin in the heart. Anger, wrath, malice. But then spill out in words. Slander and obscene talk. When these kinds of sins are present in a church, then you can be sure that community is not thriving. Now, what's striking to me is that Paul would pair this second list with the first one. Let's be honest, friends. We're prepared to say that sexual immorality is a serious sin. Whether it's pornography or adultery, we are quick to say that those things are against God's will. We're quick to call them serious. What about gossip? What about anger that leads to slander? In Paul's mind, these are just as serious. They are just as deadly. It should get your attention that the two lists are this close to one another. The first one, we're ready to say amen. That's wrong. The second one, oh. He could have paired any number of things with the first list, but He chose the sins of the heart that spill out in community-destroying words. Friends, we should take away from this that how we use our words is as important as what we do with our bodies. How we use our words is as important as what we do with our bodies. So, again, I'm just going to ask you what about you? Are you harboring anger or malice? Are you spreading information that does not concern you? Are you impugning people's motives and actions to the point that tears down their character? Friends, those things might not seem as serious as sexual immorality, but Paul says they are. And therefore, we must put such things to death. Overall, what I want you to notice from these lists is how specific Paul is when it comes to killing sin. He does not speak in generalities. He speaks specifically because that's how sanctification works. It calls sin by name. And that's the exhortation to us. We shouldn't be satisfied with general confession or a general desire to grow. Instead, we should be specific. Our confession of sin must be specific. Our dependence on God's Word must be specific. And our prayer for growth must be specific. Is that true of you, friends? Are you specific when it comes to growing in holiness? That brings us to the third mark of sanctification. Sanctification must be hopeful. Sanctification must be hopeful. There's a case to be made that this is the central point of the paragraph. The one that holds all the other truths in their proper place. That is why I put it number three in the list because it's the central point of the paragraph. I I take it. Notice the past tense that Paul uses in verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Paul's point is that the Colossians are no longer defined by their sin. Their former way of life is just that. It's former. It's not who they are now. By God's grace, they can now put those former things away. Indeed, that's what Paul says in verse 8. Look there. But now you must put them all away. Friends, please don't miss the note of change from verse 7 to verse 8. You once lived this way, Paul says, but now... You can pursue growth. Now you can pursue holiness. Now you can change. That should be one of the Christians' most favorite words. Change. Change. To grow. You see, at the heart of sanctification is the same truth we've seen throughout the letter. Union with Christ. In the Gospel, believers have been united to Christ's death So that Christ's victory over our sin becomes the believer's victory by faith. The believer can put sin to death because Christ was put to death for us and for our salvation. And therefore, our pursuit of holiness is not an attempt to gain union with Christ. No, our pursuit of holiness is the result of union with Christ. Do you see the difference? We're not trying to kill sin so that we'll be united to Jesus. We're trying to kill sin because we are united to Jesus. Already we have died with Christ to sin and therefore we must now live out who we are in Him. Paul makes this even clearer in verse 9. Notice what he says, and again, listen for the past tense realities that are at work. Verse 9 and following, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. We'll come back to the prohibition on lying in just a minute. For now, notice the change that Paul envisions as having already taken place. What has happened in the life of a Christian? The old self has been put off, and the new self has been put on. The point here, friends, is about identity. The point is about identity. Believers are no longer united to Adam in sin. You know, there's really only two people in humanity Adam and Christ. You come into this world united in, in Adam, in his sin, and by grace through faith, you're transferred from Adam's family tree to Christ's family tree, and you're united to Christ. And in him, you've put off that old nature, and you've put on the new nature. We're now united to the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore, our identity is in him. Our nature is defined by him. You see, this is one of the grand realities of the Gospel. That God would create for Himself a new humanity that is defined by the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Christ this morning, if you are repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone to save you, then this is who you are. I don't know all the struggles you've brought in with you today, but this is who you are. You have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self in Christ. God has done this for you by His grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so hear me very clearly, that means the end goal of your sanctification has already been accomplished in the Lord Jesus. He's already done it. I want to be clear on this point. Please, if you only get one thing from the sermon, please get this. If you are a Christian, you must kill sin. But you must kill sin not in order to be joined to Christ. You must kill sin because you are joined to Christ. And that's a world of difference. That's what sanctification is, brothers and sisters. It is living out by faith who we are in Christ. In fact, one theologian has defined sanctification in precisely this way. It is to become who you already are in Jesus. Sanctification is to become who you already are in the Lord Jesus. And therefore, this work of killing sin should be hopeful. I hope you're hearing me on this. Sanctification should be hopeful. The fight against sin is serious. It must be ruthless and specific. And yet, in the midst of that fight, the believer can have hope. Sin will not win. Listen to me. Sin cannot win for the Christian. The victory has already been won. The tomb is gloriously empty. The power of sin has been broken once and for all. And therefore, in all of our fighting, our hearts are hopeful. As we try to kill sin, our hearts are hopeful. Not because we're strong enough to keep going, but because we know that He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this gospel hope is actually what will keep you going in the fight against sin. It took me a long time to learn this, but there will be days... There will even be seasons when it seems like your sanctification has stalled. There will be times when it looks like you're taking five steps back for every half step forward. There will even be moments when there's just nothing. I think those are the worst of all when there's just nothing. No movement, seemingly no growth, perhaps even very little desire for growth. Where do you go in those times? Look, you can't look inward. You're you're worn out. You're broken. You're you're lost. You can't look inward. Where do you go? You go to this gospel hope. You remind yourself of Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Look, when I couldn't tell up from down in the fight against sin as a new Christian, a brother gave me Galatians 2.20 on a note card, and he said, forget about the other 66 books for a minute. Memorize this verse. And tell yourself this verse every day. And that was the only way that I kept going. Remember this hope. And then armed with that hope, what can you do? You can fight for another day. You can fight for another day. You pick up the Word again. You go to the Lord in prayer again. And you make war on sin one day at a time. You see it, friends? The hope of the Gospel. The hope that we have already been made new in Christ. That hope is essential to the work of sanctification. Without this hope, we'd quit. But with this hope, we keep going. Indeed, we must keep going. We're called to change, but we're called to do so because God has already done what is necessary In us and for us. Sanctification then must be hopeful. Ruthless, specific, hopeful. We're ready for the fourth mark. Sanctification is ongoing. Sanctification is ongoing. We're still looking at verse 10, but this time we need to see the ongoing nature of God's work. So notice again, verse 10 You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Now, it might seem odd that Paul would describe something new as being renewed. If it's new, why is it getting renewed? But the point is actually encouraging. Having made His people new in Christ, God continues to work in them. That's Paul's point. God's work is ongoing. And notice also, friends, the direction of God's ongoing work. The believer's new self is being renewed how? in knowledge, after the image of its Creator. After the image. The mention of image should bring to your mind Genesis 1 where God made humanity in His image. But as you know, that image was tarnished in the fall. Sin has marred the image of God in humanity, but God will not be deterred. Through the Gospel, God is restoring... No, better yet, God is recreating... His people after his image. But there's a significant difference now. The image in which believers are being renewed is the image of Christ, who is himself the image of the invisible God. So I want you to catch what this means for sanctification, friends. Growing in holiness is not simply about kicking old habits and getting better ones, it's not even about mere moral transformation. Now, sanctification is about conformity to the image of Christ. This is part of the Lord Jesus' work is to make His people like Him. And ask yourself, will the Lord Jesus fail in any aspect of His work? No. Heaven forbid, no. And therefore, God's work in each of His people is ongoing to the end. Because we're being conformed after the image of Christ. Even here, Paul's focus is on the supremacy of Christ. It is the image of the Lord Jesus into which... We are now being renewed. And this explains why Paul says renewal happens through knowledge. Do you see that there in verse 10? They're being renewed through knowledge. Knowledge of what, we ask? Well, knowledge of the Gospel. It's knowledge of Christ's person and work on our behalf. You see, the Gospel is the message that saves us and the Gospel is the message that sanctifies us. I need the Gospel as much today as I did the day God saved me by His grace. In fact, every Christian's testimony should begin with this phrase, I'm trusting in Christ today. We need it just as much today as we did on the day we were saved. This is how God's ongoing work continues through an increased understanding and trust in the Gospel. So, very simply friends, if you want to grow in holiness, then go to the Gospel of Christ. Remember His person and His work And there you will find the strength you need to kill sin and be conformed to Christ. Sanctification must be ongoing with our eyes fixed on the Lord. That's number four. Let's look at the fifth and final mark. Sanctification must be unifying. Sanctification must be unifying. Back in verse 9, Paul urged the Colossians not to lie to each other. That followed his list in verse 8 of heart sins that spill over in word sins against other people. So it's, it's actually a striking emphasis in this paragraph. We tend to think of sanctification mostly in individual terms. But Paul thinks corporately. Paul thinks of a community of people Growing together in conformity to Christ. In fact, that's part of the point in verse 10. It's not simply that I am being renewed in my individual self. It's much bigger than that. It's that I'm being renewed together with all of God's people in a new humanity in Christ. God's work in me is part of His larger ongoing work in all of His people together. And listen, that's why lying and gossip and slander are so devastating to a church because it undermines the fundamental unity that we share in Christ. To just put it in very stark terms, friends, when I lie to a fellow believer, I am in essence saying that I do not consider them part of the body of Christ. Because I would not lie to myself. Why would I lie to them? We share the same body. I am living as though they do not have a right to the gifts of Christ that I also share. The same is true for slander, for gossip. They tear at the unity of Christ's body. And so, throughout this paragraph of of instructions on sanctification, Paul is actually quietly making a case for unity. He's making a case for unity. Sanctification is about my personal growth in godliness, But it's also about the unity of all of us together in the church. I should hate sin because Jesus said they'd know us by our love for one another. And to drive this point home, Paul reminds us in verse 11 of the profound unity that exists in the body of Christ. Friends, it is very telling that the last verse in this paragraph is a verse on unity. Notice what Paul says, verse 11. Here, that is, here in the new humanity God has created in Christ. Here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So here we have a clear declaration that God's people must not draw distinctions based on ethnicity or class or social condition, or religious cultural markers. There is no place in the church for any teaching that elevates one group of people over another. The Gospel unites all of God's people together in Christ. So that each person, regardless of their background, regardless of their status, shares in the glory of the Gospel. But this is what we have to see. Verse 11 is not a theoretical statement about humankind. It's it's a statement about unity. Notice the application. If Christ is all and in all, then what must I pursue in the church? I must put off slander for the sake of unity, Paul says. I must seek to kill my own sin so that the unity we have in Christ is strengthened for the world to see. Look, it's about more than just my walk with Jesus. It's about each of us together growing in holiness, leading to unity that ultimately brings Glory to Christ. So let's fight sin, brothers and sisters. Let's fight for the sake of our souls. Let's fight with ruthless intent that longs to grow in conformity to Christ. Let's fight so that our communion with the Lord grows deeper. But let's also fight for the sake of unity in Christ's body. Jesus died to unite His people together in Him. So may we put off anything that works against that truth that Christ is all and in all. Sanctification must be unifying. Are Christians obsessed with sin? I don't believe so. At least not if we listen to the Scriptures. Yes, Christianity deals with the reality of sin. And yes, the Bible insists that we take sin seriously. But even then, we do so Because the good news is that God is in the business of changing sinners like us and conforming us to the image of Christ. Friends, I can't think of anything more hopeful than that. That God would change His people. And so armed with that hope, let's labor for the growth that God has promised to give. For He who called you is faithful. He will surely, surely do it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice...